0: Hello listeners, welcome to an interview episode. My guest today is Professor Aidan Dodson. Professor Dodson is the Honorary Professor of Egyptology at the University of Bristol in England. He earned his PhD from the University of Cambridge and has authored many books on a variety of subjects, from ancient Egypt to World War I battleships and English royal burials. You probably know Professor Dodson best as the co-author of The Complete Royal Families of Ancient Egypt with Diane Hilton and The Mummy in Ancient Egypt with Salima Ikram. He is also the author of The Royal Tombs of Ancient Egypt from Pen and Sword Publishing and two volumes titled Amana Sunset and Amana Sunrise, A History of the Amana Period from the Reign of Amun-Hotep III to the Aftermath of Akhenaten. I've been using these books extensively as I researched the past mm, 30 or so episodes. As you can imagine, this is an excellent opportunity to learn more about the later years of Akhenaten and his successors. So sit back, relax, and I hope you enjoy the discussion. One more thing. This episode was organised by Pen & Sword Publishing, who provided me with a free e-copy of Professor Dodson's book, The Royal Tombs of Ancient Egypt. If you are interested in purchasing a copy of The Royal Tombs, there is a link in the episode description. I am not receiving any commission, payment, or promotion from sales of this book, and in this interview, Professor Dodson and I will be discussing many topics from his accomplished career. My special thanks to Emily of Pen and Sword for reaching out to organize the conversation, and to Professor Dodson for agreeing to sit down with me halfway across the world. First things first, uh, Professor Dodson. Thank you very much. Welcome, welcome to the History of Egypt podcast. Nice to be here. So, you you published a book through Pen and Sword Publishing called "The Royal Tombs of Ancient Egypt," and your research previously in in your career has covered many aspects of history, particularly funerary customs and practices in different cultures, not just Egypt. My question is, what first drew you to these facets of the human experience?
1: I suppose Alton originally was morbid curiosity as an eight-year-old, because that's <laughs> when I first got interested in archaeology and then more broadly Egyptology and so on. Yeah, I think there was just this you know—this this, this little kid's sort of interest in looking at books with skeletons in them and stuff like that, <laughs> Then looking at real skeletons in museums. And that just really then became sort of the core of, a, of what I've done. You know, my, my PhD was mm-hmm. on the containers for mummified intestines. Um, so, yeah, I think that's where it all comes from. But I think if you want to rationalise why I'm still interested in all this kind of stuff is that the cliche that sort of death comes to all of us. And therefore, it's something everybody has to engage with. And it's fascinating to see the similarities and differences there are uh, between the ways that completely separate cultures address the same kind of question. You know, um, well, what what sort of shape of container do you put the body in? Um, what sort of memorial, if any, do you have? For the interface between this world and the next, all those kinds of things, and so the different ways in which different people sort of come up with that kind of um, thing, is probably what underpins my interest, continuing interest in funerary archaeology.
0: Great. So, in the in the sense of the cultural context, then. So you've worked you've worked across Bronze Age uh, remains, but also far more recent, um, particularly with the the Royal Tombs of Britain, which you've published on. Mm. Um, in your work across different cultural contexts, what are some of the, sort of the standout similarities that you've noticed in how humans of different cultures treat their dead?
1: I think one thing is the way that ev- – well, not everybody – a lot of them seem to come up with the idea of putting the body in something which looks like the body. Mm. Now, you've got the classic um, Egyptian mummy cases – but then in medieval Europe, you find very things which, if you didn't know they were medieval European, you'd probably think they were Egyptian mummy cases. <laughs> They're made of lead rather than wood or cartonnage, and then the giveaway that some of them then have sort of Christian crosses and things on them. But yeah. basically the idea of having an outer envelope which looks like what's inside it, or what was inside it originally looked like, seems to be something which is a quite a powerful pull and can be derived by cultures which have got absolutely nothing in common, as far as sort of the underlying um, conceptions are concerned, you know, you've got mm. um, things which are um, quite clearly um, like the Christian, the Christian context. And in fact, the whole thing goes completely against the ashes to ashes, dust to dust kind of idea. <laughs> Once you start the whole idea, which also you find in Islam as well, where you're not supposed to have any kind of um, funerary monument, yet people do. Hmm. You know, you have the you have the uh, various um, mausolea of medieval Cairo and so on, all of which are actually not supposedly allowed at all. However, <laughs> they do it. So everybody, there's another sort of de- desire here to actually to actually leave something on earth whereby people will recognise who you were um and by conspicuous consumption how wealthy you were and all those kinds of things so that's those are some of the kind of things which keep on popping up even if they, they totally contradict what the um religious mores underpinning that particular culture actually are mm,
0: interesting moving now to egypt specifically your 2009 and 2014 publications Amana Sunset and then Amana Sunrise made for a sort of um I guess a reverse duology. you studied the area the era's later years before going back to the earlier looking looking back how did many of your the views you presented in Sunset undergo significant evolution or reevaluation between the two books
1: not particularly no um, because really, uh, the sunset was was written basically because I was I was nagged into it because my really uh, my interest for a long time had been to do with the how the period ended. I had certainly my ideas about the earlier part, but sunset was written initially as a, as a, a one off about the late 18th hmm. dynasty, and then I got nagged by certain dear colleagues that. They, you know, I started a story halfway through. Could I still, could I still, you know, tell the first part as well? So so actually what I was, what I ended up writing wasn't, was something that was already in my head and it would have probably been written the same way had I written it the right way round. It was just like that time I hadn't really thought about writing a book on the early, on the early part of Amana. I It was just stuff I'd got on sure. my head. And as I, I think the think the only different, the only things which really sort of, Changed was the DNA stuff came out in between the two books, therefore mm. sun sunrise ended up addressing that, and then when I did the second edition of Sunset, I was able to incorporate all the implications of that then um that was really the that's really the sort of connection I suppose by doing it that way around yeah no, because, because about seventy five percent of the book was changed between the two editions. Well, 75% of the pages had some kind of changes. Some of them were just sort of corrections and a few bits. Some were complete rewrites. Um, and it does, what it really does indicate is how fast moving the world of Egyptology actually is. You can write a book in 2009, and 10 years later, the second edition is almost unrecognizable. The same is also to some degree true with my third intermediate period book. Um, Afterglow of Empire, because the second edition of that has very, very significant changes as compared with the previous one, which had only been done, what, six, seven years previously. So it's one of those things you've got, when I talk to my students, I really do say to them, you've got to be really careful of reading anything more than about 10 years old, because Mm. just one new discovery can change history quite literally. You know between the two editions mm. um, of sunset, the discovery of the year sixteen um, graffito was showing Nefertiti is still um, king's great wife in that year, um, mm. which contradicts yes. people who thought she was dead by then, and my view that she'd transitioned to becoming female pharaoh considerably significantly earlier than that so that 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 one discovery has ripples, which means you have to change all kinds of things um. And, then, and that's, and that's, sort of, that's, that's, that's true, say, so very much. That's one of the real things I try and under, underline to people with Egyptian history is that Egyptian history is very much a working hypothesis on the day you happen to write that bit. The very next day, <laughs> just one potsherd or bit of graffito can suddenly pull that whole thing apart because it's ultimately a house of cards. And if it turns out, you know, some of those cards have been in place for decades and then, just suddenly, one of the very fundamental ones at the bottom, you know, with the whole Nefertiti business, the question of when did she disappear, suddenly, the whole thing, mm. and you've got to start rebuilding the whole thing from scratch.
0: And the general rule is that new pod shirt always shows up the day after your publisher sends it off for print.
1: Oh, absolutely, absolutely, yeah. The the number of you know. I'm always sort of playing play catch up during, during when well, I'm correcting proofs, but it's sods law, yes. But it's the day after it goes to press and you can't do anything else, suddenly something comes up. Um, I'm yeah. very lucky with AUC Press in that when they go to reprint, they are perfectly happy for me to, if, poss- if necessary, completely rewrite the book. There are some publishers I've worked <laughs> with who basically say, we're going to reprint it. You're allowed to correct any um, errors, otherwise it's going as is. Um, whereas one of the things I mm. like about AUC Press is they're very open. They they want the books to be as good as they possibly can be. So what mm-hmm. is initially, hey, we want to do an, a paperback version of this. Have you got any corrections? Then turns into a complete rewrite. Um, but <laughs> that, which I think is important. There are there are far too many books out there which have been which were great in their day have been reprinted to death over the years. Were there any kind of corrections or or updates. And you know, when you see something mm. you no know, bright, uh, but, but you know, even when it's been reset, so it looks like a brand new book for 2020. It's only if you're an insider, you realize mm. it actually was written in 1950. And actually pretty well everything mm. in there. It's not wrong, necessarily, but the nuances have fundamentally changed. And the way we think about things have changed. Um, you know, On one mm. occasion, I, well, my students didn't understand why I was berating him for having written an essay based on a book written in 1898. He <laughs> said, well, surely it's all, all about the same, isn't it? Uh, no. Um, and your mark <laughs> and the mark I've given you um, should indicate to you not to do that again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm sure that was a formative experience for him.
1: Indeed. I, I, I take the view as far as a, yeah. where I'm, I'm marking work, I'm harsh but fair.
0: Fair enough. I I distinctly remember one of my one of my colleagues at Auckland lamenting the fact that when teaching undergraduates essays, still cropped up referencing phrases the Golden Bough in terms of religious principles and how that just that ironically that book about resurrection just would not die.
1: Just so, and I, I think I'm. I think I'm a sort of a, an idea I'm currently running with is the idea of the zombie fact <laughs> that you, you have these things which were a perfectly good idea 90 years ago, uh, yet we, they've now been disproved by academia. But they're out there already. It's almost like a virus which is out there and keeps on getting caught no matter how you try and um, suppress it. So you know these ideas mm-hmm. about um, Akhenaten and Nefertiti having fallen out and all those sorts of things which are all based on mistaking erased names of Kia for Nefertiti.
0: Mm. They're
1: still out there and they're still taught in guide schools in Egypt. So if I'm at um, Amarna with with some tour guides, they will give that whole spiel about the the breakdown in the marriage of um, Mackinac and Nefertiti. And there was a period when they would bring in sort of Princess Diana into as as a modern parallel and, Yeah, it's it's, that day, zombies are a dangerous thing in archaeology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was part one of my conversation with Professor Aidan Dodson. After the break, we dive deeper into some further aspects of the late Amana period, including the various studies, like the 2010 DNA study, and how they reconstruct different aspects of this history. Also, we discuss royal tombs and the construction of these fascinating monuments. Finally, we touch on Professor Dodson's career and how he became interested in Egyptology. That is part two after the break. See you in a moment.
1: Was the Sphinx 10,000 years old? Were there serial killers in ancient Greece and Rome?
0: What were the lives of transgender, intersex, and non-binary people like in the ancient world?
1: We're Jen! And Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. We tell you true stories and tall tales of the ancient world. Sometimes we do it tipsy. Sometimes we have amazing guests on our show. Historians like Barry Strauss, podcasters like Liv Albert, Mike Duncan, and authors like Joanne Harris and Ben Aronovich.
0: We take you to the top of Hadrian's Wall to watch the Roman Empire fall at the end of the world. We walk the catacombs beneath
1: the Temple of the Feathered Serpent under Teotihuacan.
0: We walk the sacred spirals of the Nazca Lines in search of ancient secrets.
1: And we explore mythology from ancient cultures around the world.
0: Come find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Moving now to the question of scientific material, if you would, if you would. So, in *Amana Sunrise*, you publish an appendix regarding the the large scale DNA study conducted on the mummies of this period. And for the benefit of the audience uh, listening now, looking back, how did the Egyptological community? yourself and your, those colleagues you spoke to about it, how did the Egyptological community respond to those announcements at the time and subsequently?
1: I think the problem people had at the time, and I think as if people reflected on it more, was the unscientific way it was actually presented. What I mean by that is that some of the raw data was presented, but then it didn't follow the normal protocols which is you then sort of list all the possible options then you choose then Mm. you sort of suggest which is probably your favorite one throughout it was simply the preferred option of the team was what was stated as being the fact it then required people to go away and take the raw data find a tame DNA specialist because I don't think I know any Egyptologist who really feels qualified to be able to delve into this properly and see whether or not the raw data did other stuff, which Mm. the thing which interested me particularly was this whole question about the relationship between the younger lady in KV35, the KV55 mummy and Tutankhamun. You know, it was mm. stated that, you know, that, that the article stated that Tutankhamun was the offspring of brother-sister marriage, full stop. It didn't actually yeah. point out it took Mark Gabald, um finding a tame DNA person to sort of find it. Actually, the same <laughs> genetic markers in Tutankhamun's mummy could be caused by three generations of first-cousin marriages. Mm. That The very fact that that was not actually pointed out in the original article is the sort is is emblematic of the sort of problem with it so that that, that that I think I wasn't alone in that it was that because this is sort of the the, the raw stuff is stuff which we as egyptologists need guidance through we want to know what are the full range of options and then we can take a view not be told this is our preferred option mm. particularly when you know certainly as far as the parentage of Tanakh moon was concerned if it was a brother sister marriage, suddenly you've got to find it. Where the hell is this sister of Akhenaten in the in the record, um, <laughs> which there's absolutely no trace of one. Particularly at the point in uh, in the reign where Tadakamun is likely to have been born, which is the point in the reign where we've got the largest amount of material. So it just mm-hmm. seemed very very unlikely you could possibly have had another another queen floating around in there who is also king's sister. So. But mm-hmm. then, when say Mark uh, managed to work out that actually a first cousin, three generations of first cousins, then you start being able to play more tunes. And you know, and as I've cut, my own conclusion was that Nefertiti is always certainly Tutankhamun's mother. But mm-hmm. that, that that there wasn't the, that's kind of analysis of what you can do with the material isn't helped when somebody simply says this is my, my preferred solution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Mm. <laughs> And I think there's, there's and I think that's the problem with the, with the whole all of that DNA, DNA um, that you know there is this question about you know what are the various, what what options are there within the raw data, but also there is the further um, thing about well how you know, is this real you know there is still there are still people out there who say this kind of DNA cannot be preserved in mummies particularly mummies of that particular here because uh, Joanne Fletcher, although she still doesn't go around to publishing any of this, says that her idea about the fact you've got these crystals of natron in the flesh indicates it had to have been a liquid natron bath. And it was a liquid natron bath, there is no way that DNA can be preserved. So what do we do there? Um, and mm. there's a poor Egyptologist who sort of only went as far as O-level in chemistry and physics. <laughs> you know, what am, I, what, am I, what am I supposed to do? Mm. and i think i think most of us feel feel the same kind of way Mm. yeah and the the other issue is of course because this was all announced uh, with great fanfare in the newspapers and so on as fact when Mm. you actually say to somebody in the general public actually this isn't this may not actually be correct they start sort of you know how can you how can you possibly sort of deny scientific fact and things like that it is generating more zombies. I was talking about earlier really on about zombie facts. This whole question, you know, Tadankhamun was the offspring of a brother-sister marriage, is, although not necessarily wrong, you know, there are, you know, it's still not impossible that, that there could be a woman out there who you know, might turn up you know, on a pot shirt tomorrow. You know, the, the that, certainly that, that it is a fact that he was an offspring of a brother, brother-sister marriage is a zombie fact.
0: Mm. It's the difference between a, an interpretation that is possible versus an interpretation that is likely.
1: Yeah, or uh, yeah, and also, or one which is actually is a real fact. There are occasionally there are things which are, you know, inescapable facts, uh, but this mm. isn't one of them. It's an opinion, um, and an opinion which happens to be one one of a range of statistically equally possible opinions as well.
0: Mm. So, bringing this to some 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 of those potential facts is based on based on your years of research what would you say maybe are some of the the key takeaways both positive and negative from how that particular study was conducted and published and the results that are presented
1: i think so from the point of view of the study itself the fact it was being done is important but i don't one thing about the study was that there were it was not done as one would normally do a dna study with blind with blind testing as well everybody sort of as far as i understand it everybody knew this was sort of this was dna from tutankhamun or, or kb 55 or whatever so there was there was never a this is just simply john doe you know, which was really what should have been done the trouble is the material couldn't be taken out of egypt there was only one lab, you know. So therefore, the the, chart, the way we normally do it of just feeding in this sample as an anonymous numbered thing into a lab without telling them what it was supposed to be didn't happen. So therefore, there is a certain amount of expectation in the result, the raw result, which then feeds into sort of people's preferred solutions to who people are and how they. Um, relate to each other so there is there's that whole thing there's also i think the fact that there was that there wasn't really sufficient um statement of hey there are people who don't actually believe any of this is even possible so there was a sort of a it it, it, the whole thing was and the study and its publication was given a greater sort of gloss of this is our facts we are now de- de- deriving from this genetic material rather than some interesting data which we now have to sort of unpack and sort of talk about um, in more detail and so that then say feeds on into the way the whole thing is published the fact it was interesting it was published in a medical journal rather than an the geological journal so it may well have mm. met Sort of scientific reviewing standards, but the fact that it didn't actually then provide the full range of possible possibilities is something which I'm sure would have been seized upon by a referee if it had gone through general Egyptian archaeology or one of the standard Egyptological journals. Um, mm. So there's a good point. You know, there's you know, and, and all you know, and so there, and why not and oh or why wasn't there a parallel version which was. Gone through all that, so there's there's the, pub, the publication um, has has issues, And I say there is and the results. Now people are beginning to be able to you know, get them independently unpacked to some degree. It provides some very interesting food for thought um, mm-hmm. about sort of how people might be related to each other, but the whole thing is slightly undermined by the rather by the way the whole thing was done in the first place. So we have. So, yeah, having this DNA data and one thing which, which sort of makes me sort of sceptical about those who say it's all it's, it's, it's all impossible because this DNA can't be real is that something like the uh, reanalysis of the Tutankhamun parentage data does actually produce something which seems to work. You know, if it was complete moonshine, you'd only expect it to work in one direction. It actually works for you know, for other other ways of doing it, but you know, so hence the reason why every, whenever I write about this now, and it's in, in my new Nefertiti book as well, is that I have put a, a big sort of a health warning that some of this stuff in here is based on the DNA results. However, you know, you've got to be can be aware that it's not that it's possibly you know, not real at all. And also, what I've, I've tried to say is that my reconstructions of genealogy. Which although they are um they are uh, consistent with the DNA, they don't rely on it. So nowhere am I saying that some that's that a relationship is so and so purely because of DNA. It's it's I'm saying it because the DNA supports some other data which leads me down this particular route.
0: Mm, that's good. Um It would be It'd be useful if somebody could sort of redo the the data analysis of that study and publish it as a as a new article, but perhaps that's a pipe dream.
1: Yeah, well, there have been little bits and pieces of it. I think in the um, some of the follow up um, publications mm. in the actual original journal, where various uh, gen- genetics people have sort, of, have, have, have sort of pushed in on certain things, um, but the mm. problem. It's, it's also very political as well, which doesn't help.
0: So. Just to clarify, because um, I didn't actually ask this earlier, is based on your reading of the evidence, who are the most likely candidates to be the parents of Tutankhamun?
1: I'm reasonably happy that his parents were Akhenaten and Nefertiti, um, who were who were first cousins and were probably and were the um, outcome of three at least three, if not more than uh, three generations of first cousin marriage.
0: So would that make Nefertiti? Potentially, the daughter of um, I. I. I.
1: I would. I would. It's the, the, the for the for the genetics to work if they're real, she would have been the daughter of I. And a sister of Amenhotep the Third.
0: Okay. Yeah, <laughs> well, it, it, it's confusing.
1: Well, it's the one. It's the one way to make, if, say. Assuming the genetics are real, um, that's one way hmm. of making it work. And so the whole the the question about sort of the the, the I mean, most people I know there are people who would argue that his father was Smechare. But the vast majority of people would say it's Akhenaten. But there is no, and but everybody has always seemed to try and avoid saying it's can be Nefertiti. And was, with various people, it's like, oh, his, father, his mother was definitely Kia. Well, actually, if you think about what the evidence people use for his mother not being Nefertiti, um, mm-hmm. it's, well, there's, you have all these depictions of her and her daughters, but no sign of a son. But then if you turn it on its head, if you look at all the depictions we have of Kia, they have a daughter Mm -hmm. with her, but no son. So if you're saying that if you're not shown with your son, you haven't got one, well, you've run out of candidates for his his mother altogether (laughs) because that's both of the wives of of, um, Akhenaten gone. And the key thing also, which is that up until the time of Akhenaten, royal sons are never shown on monuments. Prior Mm -hmm. to that, the only ones you get are ones who are being shown because they've got a day job, because they're a high priest or something, or they're being shown in the tomb of one of their um, their tutors. It's only in the Ramesside period that Ram- the royal sons turn up because they're purely Ram- the royal sons. And interestingly, the notorious couple of blocks from Ashmaneim, which mm. would ha- name Tutankhaten as a king's son, may actually come from the first ever representation of a king's son on a temple wall by virtue of being a king's son. So, you know, if that's mm-hmm. the very first, it's pretty late on in the rain by the looks of things as well. So people who are asking to see Tutankhaten mm-hmm. with Nefertiti and Akhenaten early in the reign, They're asking something which, which, didn't, which could not have existed because nobody had ever done that mm-hmm. before. You know, if you look mm-hmm. at um, if you look at um, the Temple of Soleb, you see um, reliefs of Amenhotep the Third T and his daughters. You mm-hmm. don't see any sons yet. Nobody would ever would ever question that he had sons of Thutmose and Akhenaten. So mm-hmm. there's, I think, there's a lot of special pleading. For some reason, some people have never wanted to see Nefertiti as uh, Tutankhamun's mother, and I've never quite understood what that is, because she's mm-hmm. the most obvious candidate. And say, so if you look back at the um, the decorum, if you want to call it that, of official monuments, you never ever see somebody there purely because they're a king's son of his body. It's there because a king's son, and also high priest of Ptah or high priest of something else. That's the only time you find it previously.
0: Okay, thank you. You've you've published on the long history of Egyptian royal tomb building. If we were to compare the royal tombs of, say, the 18th dynasty with the middle and old kingdoms that preceded it, do you see any noteworthy similarities and parallels in the design and decoration?
1: I think the key point is that any Egyptian tomb ideally has two distinct elements. Um, There is the Offering place, the interface between this world and the next, and the actual burial place, and all Mm -hmm. of them actually have that. In fact, what you're seeing during the when you follow the development of Egyptian tombs from the earliest times down to at least the late period, anyway, when it starts to break down somewhat, is you have this this clear division of the two. parts and it's quite the big question when you look at the overall history is whether those two parts are in the same place whether they're separated what exact form those two things do but ultimately it all still um, filters down to that those that basic dichotomy and it's and and all the variations of what you do within that dichotomy
0: okay and Coming back to the 18th dynasty and specifically the Amarna period, which you've published on, of course, in what ways does the Amarna royal tomb of Akhenaten develop on the principles of the the 18th dynasty before him?
1: Right, there's there's a couple of issues with Akhenaten's tomb. First of all is we have no evidence of what the um, offering chapel Arrangements would have been. You know, was there a memorial mm-hmm. temple? Was the would would Akhenaten's posthumous cult be practiced in? While the Aten temples, so that's one case we just have no idea about. When we look at the tomb itself, it differs very significantly from anything before or after it. It's clearly a some rethinking going on here. At one level, as far as the king himself is concerned, of course, the decoration has nothing to do with decoration before or after. It's simply mm. more of this kind of stat, almost sort of identical kind of Amana things of the sun being worshipped by king, queen, daughters, and so on. Although mm. the one funerary thing which you do find is that there is a concept of the king and queen king queen um, daughters mourning the an image of the deceased and also this deceased also lying on a bier as well so that's something which is not sort of found in any kind of royal tomb before or since um, and is clearly something to do with the whole Amana. Concept of what you do with the with the dead, which we still don't properly understand simply through the lack of material surviving. So the decoration Mm -hmm. is completely completely new thing. The other thing, though, is that the tomb is designed as a family catacomb. It's not designed purely for the king with the possibility of a prematurely deceased wife or daughter or son being sort of put away in one of the side rooms. So and in fact, originally, when you look at the, the tomb, there are a bit, there's scarring on some of the walls showing where there would have been doorways. So, had the thing actually been mm-hmm. carried through as far as one can see how the architect would have wanted it, there could have been something mm-hmm. like half a dozen separate complexes opening off that main gallery, which is something you've never find before or after in a royal tomb. The only sort of precursor to this is that Amenhotep III had converted but actually extended what had originally been two of the storerooms in his tomb into burial check what clearly were intended to be burial chambers presumably for tea possibly for Sitamun. so the idea of having yeah. some kind of um, architectural provision for a member of the royal family to be buried with you is something brand new with amenhotep third we know that some of the earlier kings had they had Improvised burials of prematurely uh, uh, deceased relatives, but no architectural vision. The first time we find that is Amenhotep III. Akhenaten runs with that on a larger scale, but then after that, nobody does it again. The next time we find members of the royal family in it with, uh, buried with the king is at Tanis.
0: Hmm. Interesting, such a such a sudden break.
1: I think I think it's part. I think the whole thing is part of Akhenaten's almost year zero approach to things. Everything you know, everything's mm. up for grabs.
0: <laughs> sort of a complete reset on everything.
1: I think. And I think I've always, as I say, the I've often said the I think the idea of the of the art style. A lot of that is to emphasise that it's it's a year zero kind of approach. It's in your face. So different in its inner feel from contempt from conventional egyptian art that you have to think that it was something intended to really sort of put two fingers up to whatever had gone before mm. you know I've, uh, I've i've always sort of likened it to the to punk rock which was something we i very much grew up <laughs> with where again everything about although actually punk rock was just simply speeded up ordinary rock music however the imagery and the way it was presented was intended to mark yeah. that year zero approach. I think Akhenaten was doing exactly the same thing. <laughs> now, had he been around in 1977, he'd have hope. and really <laughs> and really understood what and understood understood that whole nihilistic, um, say, we're going back to basics, we're going to start again kind of approach.
0: Interesting. That's 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 quite a take on him. I like that. That's good. Um, so you, men- you mentioned the the design. The design shift sort of became was rejected and not revived again until uh, Tanis, Although obviously the Tanite kings probably weren't doing anything consciously with that. Um, but after Akhenaten's death, that after they abandon Amana, how do how does the architectural and decorative scheme of the royal tombs change in the late eighteenth and early nineteenth dynasties? How does it change with comparison to what Akhenaten did, but also to what came before him in the um, 18th dynasty?
1: As far as prototypes are concerned, they jump back to Amenhotep III and earlier as the basic prototype. There's nothing about the post-Amana royal tombs which really recalls Akhenaten's tomb at all. Rather, what you get, and you can really only start tracing this with horem Heb, because I's tomb is certainly not the, the final plan, it's been sort of brought to a brought to a premature conclusion. What what mm. Horem Heb's architect does is he straightens the whole thing out. So therefore, mm. rather than the characteristic bend or bends earlier on, the whole thing just goes straight down into the rock, just with a slight jig in the middle of it. So architecturally, they've just really sort of tidied up the 18th dynasty type, which had become standard from Amenhotep II's reign onwards. What the big difference comes is in the decoration, and it it works at two levels. First of all, they start, and as as we move through the 19th and 20th dynasties, the number of them increases. They move from simply having this one basic um, decorative motif, which is the Book of Amduat. Instead, they move to, first of all, introducing the Book of Gates, And then as you move through the dynasty, the 19th and 20th dynasty, more and more of these underworld books are brought into play. So that's part of it. It Mm. becomes a much more, much richer, more varied thing. The other big thing is that they switch under Horemheb from painted decoration back, as in back in Amenhotep III and earlier's day, to carved decoration. And that Hmm. has some quite major impacts on various aspects of the tomb. First of all, for the building of the thing. Well, you need a completely new skill set at Daryl Medina to do this. Hmm. Previously, you're just talking about people who cut tombs, plaster it, and then it looks like the decoration was actually then done by scribes just drawing on the wall effectively. (laughs) um and it's been argued that 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 that, that the sort of the um stick figure kind of stuff was actually done after the funeral had taken place as part of the energization of the tomb. Hmm. so instead of the basic job of the del medina mob is basically to have a nicely plastered um nicely cut tomb suddenly you need people who are going to then carve the walls so therefore you need a whole new Skill set coming into Daryl Medina, and actually there are tech, there is textual material which suggests under Heb, new people were brought in over and above the previous families, and presumably these are the people who are actually people who carve wall reliefs. Hmm. This also has an effect, though; it means you can no longer have this idea that you can decorate the tomb. As part of its energization after burial had taken place there's just no way you can mm-hmm. do that because you know you're, you're generating chips of stone you know it, gets, it, it takes months you can't do what had been done previously so therefore the idea of how you go about tomb building what presumably forms part of the funerary ceremonies all change as a result of this technological what appears on the face of it with technological change of say, the um of tombs now being carved in relief.
0: Okay, so when Horamhip's tomb was opened, it was famously full of chips of uh, rubble and debris. Was was that likely a consequence of the decoration, or was that was that a result of the sort of post-burial decorative process?
1: No, I think what it was was simply the tomb wasn't finished. That they, hmm. but probably because they. We're doing this from... And also, we don't know at what stage in his reign Horeb decides he wants to carve tomb. It may have been that they started off chugging along quite happily for a decade, assuming he was going to have it painted, and then suddenly mm. says, no, I want it carved, at which point it's <laughs> all hands to the pumps. you know. And it, it could well be that the... Deco... Because the decoration is unfinished, this is all being done in the last couple of years of the reign because nobody thought about it. Because if you then look a few, uh, a decade or so further on, Seti I managed to completely carve a tomb and paint it in 10 years, or less than 10 years. Mm-hmm. So it's either that the learning curve was such that they screwed up, in Horimheb's case, or I think probably more likely is that the decision to actually switch from paint to carving was done a bit late in the day, and hence, when he died, the tomb was only partly, was only partly carved and they'd still got all, they'd still got loads of the chips still lying around and they just, and they just took the fuel, let's just, let's just bury him and um, you know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna spend huge amounts of time clearing all this stuff out. That's, that's <laughs> certainly my read. that's certainly my reading of what's going on in Horham case.
0: Okay. So that brings us to the end of the sort of historical, uh, questions and now it's sort of, now it's, uh, three questions about your work as an Egyptologist and your career in life. Looking back on your time in Egyptology, you've obviously seen many developments in how historians and scientists and archaeologists approach the field. What are some of the more noteworthy changes in how the field practices and pursues its information today?
1: I think one of the things is the emergence of remote sensing as far as field work is concerned. There was something like a revolution in the early twentieth century when aerial photography started being used for um, for archaeology, but it was the availability of ground penetrating radar, resistivity, and all those other things which I think has revolutionised what one can do. First of all, that works on, on sort of two levels. One, it means that you've got the ability to pro- to probe a site quite well before you decide to even lift a single trowel. Which is, given mm-hmm. shortage of money, is rather an important thing. But it also means you can delve underground, and see things even digging wouldn't probably do because of water tables and stuff like that. Um, and also, you can do it much, much faster as well. And I think one of the most stunning um, outcomes was the work of Angus Graham and his team around Karnak, which has suddenly which showed how the landscape around Karnak changed over time. And how parts of the of the um, architecture of Karnak can be explained by the way that the landscape has changed—that we now know from his work, which was purely done by you know, little boxes of tricks sitting on the ground. There was no and a bit and a bit of, of coring, nothing more than that. That Karnak started off <laughs> as an island in the river, that, that then the mm-hmm. that which was then swallowed up by the bank, and then gradually the river retreated westwards and that explains for example why all the why the inner pylons of the karnak temple are all squished together the way they are there's only so, a few yards between them it's because there was a river in the way they couldn't actually if you wanted to stick another pylon in front of the temple you couldn't do it it was only possibly after you know whether this was purely natural or with a bit of um help from some sort of, land reclamation that things moved back significantly between Amenhotep III and Horimheb, allowing the, what's now the Hyperstyle Hall to be built. So that, so in some ways, I think that that is almost the the, the poster the poster child for change. Well, One that the fieldwork changes um, have been beyond sort of the way that that sort of fieldwork. There's. The very fact that funding continues to be, it's got worse and worse and worse as far as these things are concerned. So the nature of what you can, the the sort of large scale field work, which I saw Patrick, when I was a student, is much less um, easy to be able to do nowadays. Mm. The other sort of areas of things have moved on, I think is a much greater degree of, at least among some anyway, of of self-consciousness about the nature of the subject, its limitations and so on. I've done a lot of work over the last few years on the history of Egyptology. And I think that's Um, become one thing, which is the very fact that now more people are interested in the history of the subject, where we've come from, where we're going to, I think is quite powerful in making us more introspective and understanding what our limitations actually are. And also, I think I think that there is a problem in the writing of um, Egyptian history. In the sense, I'm not sure that all jobbing Egyptologists, as if you want to call them that, necessarily fully perceive the way that history is actually writing history is something requiring specific skills. Um, mm. And and some I think are people who've tried sort of to, 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 to to produce historical stuff perhaps shouldn't have done. Um, on the on the upside of that, there is now a journal of Egyptian history, which there what which there wasn't a long time ago. But the majority of people who are involved in Egyptology are there are sort of culture uh, doing culture, language, archaeology kind of things. There are very few positions in universities which are specifically to do with Egyptian history. You Almost count them on figure of mm-hmm. one hand. Hmm.
0: So building on from that, are there? Are there any sort of methodologies or ideas and philosophies that you would like to see Egyptologists use more in their work? Um,
1: I think they've just really got, I think they need because they are sometimes an individual is covering a whole range of stuff, which sort of in other areas of study would be different people is to further develop that kind of self-consciousness about what you're doing, what the limitations of what you're doing are. I wouldn't say there are any particular techniques. I would say you, might, you know people need to uh, to adopt. Uh, when people try and do that, they end up with egg on their faces. There's a, it's sort of um some examples a few, a few decades ago where people were sort of, certainly were latching on to now obsolete um, anthropological ideas and then trying to sort of to make a name by um. Espousing those, and in fact, all ended up looking rather silly because the anthropologist was saying, "Well, that's what we were thinking of ten years ago. We don't think that anymore." Um, so you've got, I think, it's just to say, it's be conscious of what there is out there in your own, in the various sub bits of the sub discipline, and make sure you don't jump on too many bandwagons. It's, it's always a t- temptation to make your name by um, adopting some particular. Um, Anthropological or linguistic theory, um, but make sure you mm. understand it first before you try and sort of fold it into Egyptology.
0: <laughs> Fair enough. So, this is a question that I ask of everybody that I interview. Supposing you had the opportunity to answer one question or issue definitively from Egyptian history or culture or society. If you, could, if you could know one, one fact or piece of, piece of material f- with absolute certainty, what would you choose to know?
1: I think I would want to know what year Thutmose III came to the throne. Because if you did that, mm-hmm. you're able to build the rest of the chronology almost to the New Kingdom and, and onwards. If you knew, knew for certain what year that was, that would make life mm-hmm. so much easier. The other, the other option would be, would actually be what, what, what was the date of the um, unification of Egypt with the other one. But, but, but the, the historian in oh. me, I'm always frustrated by the being able, not really knowing quite when things happened, to be able mm-hmm. to at least have one date, which I knew prior to, um, uh, to, the, to 669, which otherwise I think is the sort of the other mm-hmm. one we've got. Or six ninety, should I say? Um, it would be rather be rather good. So, um, so <laughs> I would one of the key one of the key dates of uh, of, of pre um, Tahaka history. So, six ninety is currently our earliest real date. Everything else is guesstimate at best. So, I'd love to mm. know one of those sort of crucial accession dates for real.
0: <laughs> it shouldn't surprise me. That was your answer, actually, um, based on your <laughs> publications. I just, I just finished writing uh, two or three scripts dealing with the rebellions in Amaru and their context within the Great Syrian Wars of Chibalilioma. And uh-huh. yeah, that that whole thing was a nightmare to put into any kind of narrative. Because, because every everything everything
1: is relative. To, yeah, everything's relative to everything else. That's the trouble with it. So at yes. least having one fixed point in this in this quagmire would be useful. So you're not going round and round mm. in circles because you know, to, to know, you know to know when something specifically happened. Yeah. Hmm.
0: I sort of I compare it to a a jigsaw where you're missing all of the the edge pieces. So you still don't know whether you're in the middle of the picture or the edge or.
1: Just so. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Which is one thing which makes it fun, though, in the sense you can actually change history because because we don't we have got virtually no fixed points you can actually play tunes to a degree which you couldn't, wouldn't, couldn't do if you were a medieval historian of Europe or something like that. You know, you can actually decide whether somebody even exists or not or change their sex or whatever <laughs> just by just by one new discovery. So that's one thing that I quite like. It's one of the reasons why I'm, I've done a lot of work on the Third Intermediate period, because it's a place where mm-hmm. it's such a, apparently a mess, but you can actually get really into it and so make a difference.
0: That's a that's a fair point. So that brings me to the end of my questions. We've gone slightly over time, but I hope I that, hopefully that's hope I didn't keep you um, too late. Um, no, it's fine. Great. So Professor Dodson, many thanks for your time and for speaking with us in the middle of the evening for you. Um, I hope you've enjoyed yourself, and I hope you would consider visiting the podcast again when we come to later rulers that you have to, that you have researched.
1: Very happy to do that. Yes, yes.
0: Excellent. Um, when do you have any do you have any inclination on when your when your new works on Nefertiti and so forth are likely to appear?
1: Nefertiti should be out in the autumn, so October, November, I think. Oh, fantastic! Because it's it goes it's going to press on the 20th, on the twentieth of May. So um, mm-hmm. on, on the base of when Ramesses the Third came out, yeah, it should be it should be sort of October, November, I would guess. I'm sure once it actually goes to press, I'll probably get a proper thing. I think, although of course at the moment with all the, you know, there all the various uncertainties. I suspect, you know, that it's been sure. printed in, in China. It's all, but generally, it mm-hmm. should, it'll be out. should be out for Christmas anyway.
0: Um, and your next book, Tutankhamun, was it? Well, the
1: next one is the first pharaohs, and and then I've got then there's a Tutankhamun one in the again in the same series, which is due to be an unashamed cash in on the um, <laughs> on the on the centenary. So that should be out in November 22. Jolly good. So basically, basically I'm working on a, on, a, on a volume of this series each year now.
0: Um,
1: okay. Which was never no, originally fantastic. intended. It was it was it was just that that Seti the was produced. Everybody seemed to like the way it was. It hung hung together. I thought it was quite a nice way of doing doing a pharaoh. A slightly unusual way of doing it. So mm. um, so I've got then got after that there is the Nubian pharaohs. And then the Third and Hatshepsut, I'm currently signed up to do. You know. mm, great. Okay, keep me, keep me busy so, for the next few years anyway.
0: Yes, we'll have to have you back to talk about them at some point. Uh, so yes, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Okay, and look, so I look, I look forward to seeing it going live.
0: My special thanks to Professor Dodson for joining me for that wonderful conversation. There is a little bit extra from the discussion, which I will release in a later episode. It has to do with the death of Akhenaten and what happened immediately after he passed. That information will come in a future episode when we reach the proper moment. For now, thank you to Professor Dodson and to Pen and Sword Publishing for organizing the conversation. That's all from me. I'll be back soon. See you on the next episode. History isn't black and white, yet, too often, it's presented as such
1: grey history, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty, to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.